Instigating change just simply requires an openness to the possibility that the way things have been will not last. And in retail, particularly, the industry is guilty of essentially resisting change to the to the degree that now it finds itself in a catastrophic circumstance. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hey everyone, I'm Alicia Esposito and welcome to another episode of Retail Remix. As a content strategist, I always love enjoying uh, brainstorming with folks who think like me, who like to uncover new opportunities, look for patterns, and even in some cases, predict trends. Needless to say, Joe Jackman of Jackman Reevents has a lot more experience in that field than I do, so it was really enlightening for me to sit down with him, hear about his experiences in helping brands embrace change and disruption, and hear about the process he went through in writing his new book. So sit back, relax, and, and listen to Joe because he really has a lot of great insights to share. I hope you enjoy it. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It is my pleasure, Alicia. Well, I'm really excited to speak with you today because uh, at Retail Touchpoints, a big area of our coverage is innovation and essentially how retailers can keep pace with disruption, embrace change, and that's really what you do every day through your company's website. I, I love that your bio is a little Q&A and you say that you help people focus on and get comfortable with change. So I thought a good way to kick off our conversation is um, to ask you, why is change still such a scary thing for people, even though it's really the constant in our lives, right? Things are always changing. So what, why is that still such a problem? It's human nature, the short answer. We're hardwired to assess the risk of things that are unknown, evolutions of our business model, for example, or trying new things in general. And we put a lot of emphasis on assessing the risk of trying new things. We don't often equally assess the risk of staying put. And it's not new news today that change is coming faster than ever before. And in some ways, this reality is colliding with our instincts around, you know, maybe it's a little safer doing what I'm doing. At least I know what that is. I know what the outcome will be in that regard. And, you know, people are are smart enough to know the world is changing in lots of ways But that instinctive override causes us to do things like, well, maybe if I double down and do things a little harder, maybe if I try incremental tweaking of what is known, and maybe that'll solve the challenge or the consequences of all this change around me. And what we find is business leaders rallying around the status quo or some incrementally tweaked version of it and staying with it to the point where it fails. And I really do bring that down to some very human qualities such as fear, you know, or fear of reputational risk, perhaps. Well, what if I try something, it doesn't work? Will I be the leader that led a business in the wrong direction? But in the end, taking the status quo, galvanizing commitment around it and riding it off a cliff is not really, you know, the smart thing to do today. Yeah, I, I think those are all 
traits that we found to be especially present in the retail industry because there are a few folks that are maybe a bit more risk averse, you know, the financial types, you know, the C-suite, and then the people who are on the front lines, I think it's more of that fear of, am I going to have a target on my back or on my head, right? If I'm going to be the one that's trying to drive this change, whether it be a new project or a new um, initiative, and then it's going to all come back to me. So I, I think there there are different, you know, emotional and, and mental aspects that probably affect different roles. But as far as the ability to manage change in a scalable way for a business, again, retail is going through such a significant amount of change, especially now in the current social atmosphere. We'll get into that a a little bit. Mm -hmm. But you're an expert at not just instigating change, but managing change. And I think those are two very distinct qualities that retail executives especially could benefit from. But I have to ask, I mean, where where are the gaps? If you were to look at businesses or retail specifically, is it just a matter of managing the disruption and managing the change in a scalable way? Or is it pushing things out of that comfort zone or out of that status quo? Or or, or is it a combination of both Mm -hmm. that executives are mainly struggling with right now? Well, I think it is both. As you say, instigating change just simply requires an openness to the possibility that the way things have been will not last. And in retail, particularly, I've grown up in it. My family uh, was in retail as well. And the industry is guilty of essentially resisting change to to the degree that now it finds itself in a catastrophic circumstance where many of the legacy retailers, you know, there was a time when I would refer to a few legacy retailers that were slow out of the gate to adopt shifts in consumer expectations and their ability to shop differently, not just in e-com, but in many other ways, technology enabled. And a lot of retailers said in the early going, look, you know, e-commerce penetration is very, very small. In some categories, it was non-existent. And really where we make our money is in the physical channel stores. And let's keep an eye on that. A few early adopters started to do some investment and learning into e-com. But in the analysis that was going on over the last really decade, it was a rounding error on the main business. Whether it was in some categories, 2% of sales were going through e-com channels versus stores. Some were higher, 5, growing to 10. And today even there's very few categories that go north of, say, 20% penetration. Now, that starts to be a big enough number. But in many categories, it's still quite low. And I don't think retailers really took it seriously. Uh, You know, I use that expression. It was a rounding error on their main business. And so instigating change was the issue. The second aspect about making change, particularly business model change or evolution, is we tend to make it binary, that this is what we know, and this is what we believe to be net new, where we're not developed. And we can imagine a hard cut from old to new, as opposed to a stepping forward, very, very prudently learning our way, not placing any big bets, but participating in 
what potentially could become the new way of doing things and learning the way into it and then deciding how to migrate from old to new or simply what is the mix between old and new. And I think a lot of retailers just said, it's not that important to us today. It's not that significant financially. It would cost a lot of money into unproven economics. So let's just sort of wait and see. And all of that changed, I think, when e-com became real, when technology was put in the hands of pretty much the planet with smartphones and such. And mobile became a real tipping point to penetration of online shopping. And a lot of retailers were caught flat-footed and they've been trying to play catch-up. Now, the trouble with that is, if it was just them against other legacy players also playing catch-up, the world would have worked out okay. But unfortunately, disruption was happening where, you know, net new players entering categories saying, I don't have any stores. I don't have any legacy assets to worry about. I can stand up a proposition and a customer experience that's super efficient and go head to head with much larger rivals and take share. And you don't have to have tremendous amounts of share to hurt a retailer. Take mattresses, for example. You know, along comes new disrupted models in mattress selling and they get copied. And then there's, in addition to Casper, there's three or four others. And pretty soon, meaningful share is starting to shift from old guard retail mattress sellers. You know, that's the world we're finding ourselves in now. We've just, as a retail industry, we've just left it too late. And you can see the consequences daily. And that was all before COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you bring up some really great points there. And I think, you know, the reality that a lot of these legacy brands almost wait and seed themselves into their own situations or in some cases, even their own demise is just a reality because, you know, we hear so much about, oh, you need to innovate, push limits. You need to not be afraid of failure. But that fear of failure is really what's inhibiting them from thinking outside of what small, you know, small realistic steps can we take to blend the old and the new so that it's not as taking a giant leap but like little little baby steps right and that fear of failure is what's really inhibiting them from fully keeping pace with those new disruptive DTC brands and and like you said even mattresses are you know that whole experience is being turned on its head Mm -hmm. so that fear of failure and that having to be held accountable for decisions at the C-suite level, at the customer level, even at the board level, right? That criticism kind of hits a lot of touch points. How can retail executives mitigate that fear of failure or at least work around Mm -hmm. it, right? Because like you said, that fear of failure is kind of like an innate behavior or innate feeling that we as humans will always have. But how do you kind of go against that, you know, little gut feel of, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe I shouldn't do that, (laughs) Right. Well, there, there is a way of thinking and doing through change. And that's really why I wrote the book, The Reinventionist Mindset. It's centered on, as it suggests, learning to love change and the human how of doing it brilliantly. That there is a set of tools that you can use that will up the odds of success in making change of any kind. And I feel um, that having 
you know, had the good fortune to partner with over 40 companies making transformational change of one kind or another, many of them retailers. The, the book is a product of lessons learned along the way. I couldn't help but notice that certain leadership teams would have a tendency to embrace change and really embrace uncertainty to a degree that enabled them to say, what if, and to act into their insights that they were gathering, their instincts around, you know, we're not sure this would work and we don't know if it's going to be economic for us, but let's suspend disbelief and let's start to put some things in motion and learn from them and eventually perfect what is working and start to figure out how to take it to scale. Well, those characteristics, those behavioral characteristics, were very noticeable um, to me as me and my team were partnered with leadership teams. And the opposite was also true, where leadership teams would have instincts around, well, you know, there's not enough evidence to say that this will ever warrant a return on investment that's going to be attractive to us, which almost nothing in the early going is, you know, going to deliver a return on investment simply because there's no scale yet, because you're spending money experimenting and and not towards things that you know work, but things that you're trying to figure out if they will work. And for all these reasons, you know, either teams were seeing it and really embracing ways to think and behave, or they weren't, became the, the book. And I distilled it down. It became, you know, a set of notes beginning with Dwayne Reed in New York City when we were tapped to help with the transformation of that regional drugstore chain, an old Navy on the other coast. And I eventually distilled those notes down into about eight principles. Each was about a paragraph long. And eventually, you know, the paragraphs got shorter and the principles got fewer. And now the book talks about five principles. Each are either two words or three words. Very, very simple in their articulation and almost so simple that they can be easily dismissed. But what I would say, and I'm not being arrogant, I I hope in this statement, is that what I realized was these five simple principles are actually the game changers of change itself. That if we can think this way or these ways and behave in these ways, the success odds go way up, like not, not a little bit up, they go way up. And I'm happy to talk with you about what those principles are and where they came from, because they're all rooted in case history. But uh, that's really the answer to your question is, yes, there is a toolkit that you can draw from, and it will make a difference as you face change and every business uh, and every leader is today. Yes, I definitely want to dig into your process for creating the book because I'm always intrigued by the process, especially for creating these more tactical guides, you know, frameworks, processes, because it has to be distilled upon experience, right? And you, and you noted that, you know, your work with 40 or so companies, some a lot of them being retailers, was really the, the underpinning of the inspiration through the book. But I mean, what were some of the twists and turns throughout the process? Did you learn or unlearn anything along the way? Like, did you have a vision that ultimately got molded or, or changed at all as, as you kind of went through the process? I know you said you had five you had eight steps that turned into five, but I mean, what, what kind of guided that? 
Yeah, well, I'll give you one example of, of something that changed over the years. And I've had my company, Jackman Reinvents, up and running for about 12 years. And, you know, through that time, I can tell you that anything that we did in the early going, we certainly refined and, and simplified. You know, that's on the process side, the method, as I think about it. And the complementary mindset, which, which really is the flip side of the method, started to emerge. And that, that became the principles of the, the mindset. But on the method, really, as I grew in my career and became beyond a creative director and started to work in setting strategic direction, helping my clients do that, there was this very long-standing belief that strategy was primarily a, a rational construct, that it was, it was fact-based, it would be based on you know, deep analytics, it would be very uh, rationally constructed, and all of that is important and still valid. But what I started to learn was that belief that it must be fact-based. If it's not, it's suspect, really um, had incredible limitations. You know, all future cannot rely on factual analysis because by their nature, facts are historical. We need to connect insights and intuition and imagination of what might be possible based on what we're seeing in the facts. And that really went from strategy as a rational exercise, very fact-based, to really strategy as an exercise based on a balancing of facts and feelings. That feelings, part of it being, you know, what do we see in the facts that are causing us to think different? What gaps are there? What possibilities exist? What does instinct tell us is happening you know, I love that expression in the sports world. You know, let's let's not follow the puck. Let's let's skate to where the puck is going. Well, that essentially is requiring instinct and observation and a whole set of the the more emotional dimensions of determining strategy as well as the factual and the rational. The other thing was that strategy, as I grew up in in the early part of my career, was something done by very few people. You know, on the client side, it was the CEO, typically, if there was a head of strategy, the CFO. And strategy would be shaped, approved by boards, and then, and then essentially handed down to the rest of the organization. You know, operational leaders, here's our strategy. Here's where we're going. We need you to do these things. These are the numbers that we're putting forward as targets to hit. And same thing with marketing and same thing with all the other dimensions, merchandising, if it's a retailer. And what I found was that when I became an executive for about two and a half years, and I was the CMO of a big publicly traded retailer, it wasn't my strategy. I wasn't participating in it. It was being handed to me. And I was essentially being directed to execute someone else's strategy. Well, I started to realize that the more participative the strategy process is, the more there is ownership. And this comes back again to human nature. We tend as humans to support that which we help create. And so if in some way, either significantly or even just modestly, but still meaningfully, I'm participating in the shaping of strategy, what do you think the odds of my supporting it are going to be? I'm going to say, well, it's not their strategy. It's my strategy too. I'm part of this. You know, even if it was 
I participated in a survey or a conversation at town halls. And the strategy ends up being shaped by a collective. The more we can do that, the more power results, the more people buy in. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty safe bet that, you know, strategies, good strategies executed by a community people that believe in them and take them forward are going to beat great strategies that aren't embraced by people every day of the week. And I think that, that, that was sort of, you asked about, like, what did I learn along the way? Those two things were really, really incredibly important to what I practice today. I love that. So is that notion of, you know, the broader culture or broader organization participating in that vision, in that strategy, coupled with the notion of, you know, taking a more emotional versus data-driven approach to strategy? Is that kind of what drives the human-centered approach that you refer to in the title? Or, or what else drives that approach that you're touting? Yeah, it's, it, it's both. And, and, you know, I've been accused on some occasions of being critical of fact-based analysis and determination of, you know, important things about, say, centered around in strategy work, where's growth going to come from? And competitive analysis, which tends to be very, very factual in its nature. And yet, if you embrace that and you say, that's super important, it was then, it is today, but match it with a rigorous analysis of human insights. What is it that people, our customers, and our potential customers are caring about beyond the functional, beyond the obvious reasons that they make decisions. If we go deeper and find real human insights that matter to our customers, that's the rocket fuel of creating powerful strategy. And it marries really well with analysis of demand spaces and where dollars are today and where they're going. So I I argue for both in the work. But the human insight is one aspect of this more human approach. It's human engagement. I remember years ago sitting in an audience and I was uh, one of a number of partners, strategic and, and in those days creative partners, invited into the room to hear a reveal of a leadership team of business I was working on, a client, share their strategy. And it was, it was a big meeting. There was uh, 800 people or so in the room. And the strategy was revealed as financial analysis with a set of metrics for measuring progress and the outcome articulated as growth. We intend to take this share to grow our business to this size in this time frame. And it was very, very thoughtfully built and relatively credible, but it was as dry as toast. And I remember talking with people afterwards and I said, wow, like the the business is really, you know, resetting its strategy. What are your thoughts? You know, well, yeah, it's not that much different than before. And essentially it's a new set of targets and a little bit on the how how we're going to do that, but more, you know, in the financial realm. There was appeal at some base level to the head, but certainly not to the heart. And I thought one of the most powerful things in human nature is to engage people's emotions. Had people left that room that day and said, 
not only do I get what they're asking and what they're sharing and our intention, but wow, was I ever excited about the outcome and the picture they painted of where we're going and how that was going to start to manifest itself and how I would be part of that. In fact, a key part of that. And we're headed to a super exciting place. None of that happened. And it really left me with a conclusion that has carried me to this day, which is if we keep strategic intention in the rational realm only, we lose the most powerful aspect of human nature, which is purpose, the sense that this is important, that there is an exciting road ahead and it's going to lead us to an exciting outcome. And I get to be part of that. If none of that is happening in strategic development and the way it's brought forward to entire communities of people within culture, you're leaving so much power on the table. Because look, we're built the way we're built. The heart wants what the heart wants. If we can tap into that, people will move mountains to make it real. If they get excited, if they can can be brought into the process to have it, as I say, feel like it's it's their strategy, it's their intention, and see an outcome that they can get engaged with and super excited about. Because there's nothing more powerful than engaged community that shares a vision and is leaning in hard to get there. That's, to me, strategy. In fact, the ultimate test is, I would say, you know, I'd ask leaders, in fact, I do in meeting new ones, do you have a strategy? And most will answer, well, yes, of course we have a strategy. And I say, by my definition, if your entire organization is not clear on what that is and isn't believing it and excited about delivering it, then you don't have one. If it's not real across your culture, across your organization, understood, felt, you know, strategy must not only be understood, it must be felt. I love that, Joe. There's so much to unpack there. And I do think that cultural support, that sense of community and that excitement around we're doing something bigger here than, uh, you know, the financial line items. I think that's critical. And I know that there have been some recent stories around innovation labs and initiatives that have faltered, things that have gotten some headlines, but have ultimately fallen flat in terms of the execution. And it turns out that a lot of the times that cultural component, that laddered up support and buy-in from everyone, it tends to be a gap. So I definitely think that that's kind of the foundational layer. But is there anything else? Like if you were to look at the successful cases of reinvention versus, you know, the ones that were possibly well-intentioned, but kind of fell flat in terms of execution. Is there anything at the tactical level or anything else that we haven't discussed yet that tends to separate the two? Well, I I think um, going back to the point of great strategies that are executed from a top-down perspective that are built, you know, more rationally than emotionally, and yet would, you know, yield high potential results, but aren't embraced by organizations or, you know, on a base level understood and made tangible for people and therefore aren't executed. You know, that reality that I think has become a bit of a a joke in a way, you know, the strategies that gather dust on the shelf. I think there was a commercial years ago about, you know, a group of consultants with an executive and and the executive saying to them, I really like this. I think this is a great strategy. Let's do it. And they said, well, we don't do, we just 
create strategy. And, and so, you know, once again, strategy sits on a shelf. So engaging, as you say, I like what you're, the way you're interpreting is that engaging uh, culture in a very particular way ups the odds of success. And, you know, I think about, I read a lot, I wasn't part of the Ron Johnson era of JCPenney, but I certainly studied all the analysis that came after. And many concluded, me as well, that it wasn't a wrong strategy. It wasn't a bad strategy. It's just the way that that leadership team went about it. And it really had very little chance of success because it was a hard cut from the past to what they saw as the future because people were told what to do and not brought along because the bets were large, not a series of small bets. You know, in the, in the tech industry, I, I really like, you know, one of the principles in the book is create the future now, which is a way of getting things out of your head and getting them out of the lab and getting them into the field and not worrying about whether they're perfect. You know, I, I, years ago, a colleague of mine said this expression, you know, balance getting it right with getting on with it. It's such a simple way to think about innovation and learning from, you know, not 1.0 release going to 2.0 and a really big shift, but, you know, 1.1, 1.11, 1.12, you know, this iterative way of putting things in motion, learning from them, and fundamentally, step-by-step, creating the future now, as opposed to this Hail Mary pass, oh, I guess future, the future is going to be some massive pivot which was really the, the J.C. Penney example in the Johnson era of, you know, this was then, now we're heading here, and we're going to do a hard cut from past to future. And, uh, you know, we know how that turned out. Yeah. And I think, you know, that saying that, that you just shared from your colleague aligns pretty well with what I'm hearing a lot of right now. You know, we're recording this at the end of March. We're dealing with the rapid developments around coronavirus. And of course, retail is, is being pummeled in, in a lot of ways. But what I'm hearing a lot of is don't let great get in the way of good. And I think that really speaks to a lot of the measures that Retailers are taking the targets of the world, the Home Depots, and a lot of grocers as well. They're really trying to bolster the offerings and the experiences that essentially their customers need right now. Curbside pickup, contactless fulfillment, mm-hmm. other modes of engagement and getting not just information they need, but products they need in the time that is most convenient for them. So we have to ask, you know, this is a topic that of course is always going to be evolving as the situation evolves. But I mean, what are you seeing now? You know, those little those little bubbles of innovation or, or reinvention. And ultimately, how do you think that this will impact retail in the long term. I mean, will it, will it kind of have that ripple effect? Yeah. In fact, I, I'm so excited. Obviously, like every other human being on the planet, I'm fearful and empathetic about what's going on and, and entire communities, you know, losing livelihoods or, or at high risk of, you know, seniors or all of that. But professionally, I'm excited because oftentimes innovation happens when there's a force. And in this case, it's it's a negative force. It's, yikes, we can't do things the way we have normally been doing them. 
So we need workarounds. And, you know, in, in my work, back to that idea of, you know, indecision, stopping a lot of change, we actually work with retailers and other kinds of companies to build a case for change. Why is it that we believe that now is the moment that we must start to do things differently? Let's all be clear on what that is. Well, the case for change today is being written, you know, in the news media with what's happening, and it's causing this workaround mentality, this scrappy, creative, well, if we can't do it that way, what way can we do it that's going to be meaningful to our customers or true to who we are as a brand and what our values are? And I'm super excited that many of the possibilities of evolving the value proposition or the customer experience, the way that channels are used, for example, or just fundamentally customer engagement, a lot of the possibilities might not have actually happened were it not for this crisis. And, you know, as I look across, say, obvious things, you know, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid saying, we'll waive delivery fees because you don't need to come to our stores to get, you know, your prescriptions and other things. Let us get those things to you safely. Will we ever go back once we've crossed that bridge? Maybe, but I suspect expectation will shift as well. But then other, you know, brands, Nike, making the decision initially in in China to waive, you know, access, uh, any barriers to access to its apps and and its services. Well, customers applauded them for it. And guess what happened to their e-com sales? In in China, they went up 30%. And so now they cite that as global best practice and are kind of rolling out similar things elsewhere. Chipotle saying, well, I guess if we can't operate our restaurants, can we at least connect people communities of people around lunchtime and dinnertime and perhaps bring, you know, some exciting celebrities into the mix and we can all be connecting over a meal in a different way. Will that go away when this is done? I suspect not. I think there's, there's lots of innovation. You know, even Dick and Luxury, the, the incredibly prestigious brand Patek Philippe watches, never sold on e-com before. But now people without access to stores, they've said to certain retailers, yes, we endorse you selling on your site. You know, here's some guardrails around how to do that and so on. That's a massive shift for that brand and that company. And then, of course, all the other ones. You know, I'm just, every day I'm just drinking it in, all all the developments. You know, Dyson, the incredible Dyson company of the UK saying, well, I think we could figure out how to make events later. And they did so in 10 days. And now they're building 15,000 of them in record time. You know, Instagram launches co-watching of posts on the video chat platform. Uber Eats incentivizing support of local restaurants and saying, you know, the first one you pay for, the next one in the future will pay for. That's incredible stuff. And it will be the fuel for what I believe is, is the exciting reimagination, creative reimagination of how retailers and hospitality brands and all customer-facing businesses do what they do in the future. And uh, I'm super excited by the silver lining in all of this. Unfortunately, though, it's going to have some consequences to those players that are on the bubble financially or in terms of relevance. It will take a lot out, which we've been seeing anyway. 
but those on the margin, I think will this will be the last blow. Those are some great examples, Joan. I do think that only more cases will emerge, you know, as we head through uh, this entire experience. And I, I will say that those companies that do take the leap and say, you know, what can we do today to not just be there for our customers, but, you know, contribute to the greater good or the greater mission, there is ultimately going to be some sort of long tail effect uh, as far as, you know, brand perception brand engagement. I mean, you know, just seeing that Dyson example, that headline on the news made me think a little bit like, oh, like maybe I do want to invest in in a company like this. So it'll be interesting to see how those cases continue to evolve. And hopefully we can have you back on the show to talk through some of those lessons and and those findings along the way. But this has been a fantastic conversation, Joe. We're at the tail end of our time together. But before I let you go, we always try to do a bit of a speed round with our guests to kind of get to the heart of who they are, what drives them and their work. You know, it's always a fun way to close out the conversation. The only rule is you just have to answer as quickly as possible. You down? Yes. Excellent. So now that you're uh, officially an author, I want to ask, what book or books inspired your writing? Oh, I would say so many. I love all the Jim Collins books. I've you know grown up with those. Malcolm Gladwell is a personal uh, favorite. But I'm I'm inspired um, beyond you know leadership broadly. I'm reading a book uh, again on Churchill and his leadership in hard times. It just seems like the uh, the appropriate moment to do so. And uh, so I, I would say uh, it's a very broad spectrum. Great. What was your best cure for creative blocks during the writing process or for the strategy process as well? It's running. I would get onto a treadmill or head out to the outdoors, just clear the air. I think getting those endorphins to flow, reminding yourself that, you know, the block is really in the head and you can get that taken care of just by you know, exerting yourself. Yep. It works for me. Ariana Huffington says the best thing to do is walk away sometimes. So I think <laughs> I think that's uh, something that a lot of us are trying to do. <laughs> Would be my my version of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite project that you and your firm has worked on? I love what Michael Graves uh, said when asked that question. The next one. <laughs> love that. What brand or retailer do you think is getting this whole reinvention thing right? Well, we're working with Staples today. So selfishly, I'm I'm so proud of the leadership teams, uh, both sides of the border, and how they're really working hard to reinvent a proposition and, and a customer experience for those needing help, working, learning, and growing. So many of um, Americans and North Americans are engaged in entrepreneurial pursuits, and they're really, really breaking the mold of, of what it means to be a partner to those customers. So that that would be my highlight of today. But I really do uh, like Nike is one of my favorite uh, Nike. I think they've, they've continued to re-examine, reimagine, reinvent um, themselves in so many exciting ways. Yeah, Nike is doing some fantastic stuff. Finally, before we let you go, Joe, you've got a lot of execs listening right now. Why don't you share a quick little elevator pitch for why they need your book like now? <laughs> Although a lot of our conversation had to do with it, but anything else? Well, I think it's based on, you know, if I were speaking directly to a group of leaders, I would say I've been there with many in really tough moments. And I would say the book, by revealing lessons learned in, there's eight case examples, the first person storytelling of 
why they decided to reinvent and what happened when they did and and what challenges did they face and and how very courageously they overcame those challenges. You know, I, I just feel I feel a pain. I feel the challenge. And I wrote a book based on what I learned with so many leaders in tough circumstances. And I believe there's uh, some value in it uh, for you if you're thinking about or engaged in transforming your businesses. Great. Finally, what one personal one. What's keeping you sane right now? <laughs> music. Love it. What I was going to say, music and podcasts, audio broadly. <laughs> like I, what, I, what I really discovered is the richness of content that's out there. And, uh, you know, I was on, I'm sure with tens of thousands of others, I was on the D, the D nice DJ session that he, he held last week. And he's probably been doing some other ones since, but I remember just this moment of community centered around music and it was so exciting and, and so fresh and it just totally changed my headspace, you know, cause we're all going up and down like crazy. And then just listening to podcasts like yours. And I find it just really reassuring and uh, and really helpful. Love it. Well, one thing has really risen to the top in our in our conversation, I think, at several points, and that's the importance of community, whether it's to drive your business or yourself personally. Joe, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you, one strategist to another. Um, a lot of the points really resonated with me, and I hope that it resonated with all of our listeners as they kind of navigate this new reality and also continue to develop their plans for moving forward in terms of understanding their customers and bringing their business to that new level of relevance, whatever relevance may may mean in the future. So Joe, thank you again so much for uh, taking the time out to speak with me today. Great to speak with you, Alicia. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.